Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me this morning to Judges chapter 3. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought God could use you to do something great? Maybe it was to change our culture back toward righteousness. Maybe it was to be a spokesman for, for God to bring about a great revival, a great awakening to our land. Uh, perhaps it was to reach an unreached, unengaged people group somewhere around the world, people who had, had never heard the name of Jesus before. Have you ever thought that God could use you to change history? Now, if you've never thought that, I want to ask you another question. Why haven't you thought that? Is it because you see yourself as nothing special? Is it because you see yourself as just average and an ordinary person? Is, is that why you've never thought that God could use you in a mighty way to do great things? Well, if that's the case this morning, I've got good news for you. Because as we open up God's Word and we look into God's Word, we discover that ordinary, average, common Everyday people are typically the kind of people that God most often uses. When we read through the Bible, we discover that God has a tendency to use no-names, unknowns, people that, that we would least expect. Someone said it this way, when God goes to war, he usually chooses the most unlikely soldiers hands them the most unusual weapons, and accomplishes through them the most unpredictable results. And that's what we see in, in chapter 3. As we read through this chapter, we read some names that perhaps we have never heard of before, and perhaps we will never hear of again. These people aren't the well-known people of Scripture like Gideon and and Deborah and Samson that we read about in the pages of Judges. These are unlikely heroes. So if you feel ordinary or perhaps if you feel less than ordinary, if you feel like a nobody, then listen up. Because God wants to use you to do incredible things and all you need to do is be available and take a step of obedience. Now, last week, we looked at the first two chapters of Judges, and we discovered that whenever a nation or a group of people that God has chosen for his very own purpose, for a great purpose, turn their back on God, they will fall further and faster than we've ever thought possible. Now, let me remind you that when the people of God entered the promised land, God gave them a command. He told them that they were to completely rem to remove the pagan nations. They did that initially. Under the leadership of Joshua and the generation that, that went along with Joshua, they began to remove all the nations from the land. But when Joshua and that generation died, that older generation died, the younger generation failed to finish the task. And before long... We discovered that, that the people of God, the Israelites, were living just like the pagan nations they were meant to destroy. And not only were they living like those pagan nations, they were worshiping their pagan gods. Now, and as we move into chapter 3, 
and we read the first four verses, we discover why God didn't on his own go ahead and finish the task. I mean, God told them that he would deliver them. God told them that he would remove the pagan people from the land, but he was going to use them. And when the people became disobedient, God did not remove the people from the land. Now, why didn't he? Well, notice what it says in verses 1 through 4. It says, these are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previous, had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonites, the Hivites, living in the Lebanon mountains from out Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their forefathers through Moses. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't remove sin from our lives totally and completely when we become a Christ follower? Think about it for just a moment. Why isn't it that when we are saved, God doesn't completely remove the temptation of sin? Why is it still a struggle for us once we give our heart and life to Jesus, once we enter into that relationship with him, why is it still a struggle with sin? I mean, when I got saved, it was wonderful. I remember that day as if it were yesterday. That moment when, when I came to that point where I realized that God loved me, that Jesus Christ died in my place on the cross, and he would forgive my sins if I would only trust him. And that morning I trusted him to save me and, and he came into my heart, he came into my life and, and he changed my life completely and totally. And, and that day I wanted to live for Jesus more than anything else in the world. And for the first several days it was wonderful, it was incredible, it was great. But then all of a sudden I realized that I still struggled with a desire for some of those bad habits. I discovered that, that I still had a tendency to have a bad attitude at times. I discovered that, that when I got upset or when something happened, I would let some words slip out of my mouth that I knew were not pleasing to God. And at that point in time in my life, I would always ask God to remove the temptation. And it seems like God never removed the temptation. And as I grew and matured in my faith, I discovered that I was asking the wrong question, or I was asking for the wrong thing. You see, I shouldn't have been asking God to remove the temptation. I should have been asking God to give me a way to flee the temptation and if I could not flee the temptation, give me the strength to overcome the temptation. Because the Word of God makes it clear that even Jesus, who was sinless, faced temptations. He not only faced them there in the wilderness, the Bible tells us in Luke's gospel that he faced many temptations from that time on. The Christian life is a life filled with temptations. 
So, so why does God not remove temptation? Why does God not remove the evil and the desire for evil from our midst? Well, in this passage, God tells us why. He says the first reason that he doesn't remove the evil is to detest our obedience. Jesus said it this way. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey me. You see, God allows difficulties and struggles and even temptations to test us and prove our faithfulness. You see, when we face the storms and the struggles of life, it is during those times, those difficult times, those times of testing and temptation that our faith grows and we mature. And so God allows these difficulties in our life to test us, to prove us, to help us grow. But it also says here that he allows the sin to remain to teach us warfare. You see, there was a generation in that day in Israel that had not ever had to fight. They had been living among the pagan lands for so long that they didn't know how to fight the enemy anymore. And understand, even though they had to do physical battle, their fight was not a physical fight. They may have been fighting in the physical realm, but they were also fighting in the spiritual realm. The Israelites needed to understand that even though they had to battle the forces of darkness, the pagan nations, they had to do it in God's power, in God's strength. You see, God wants you and I today to learn how to fight the enemy. And that's why he leaves the temptations. That's why we aren't given a complete new nature immediately. The old nature stays and we have this battle. That's why we have this world that we have to fight. That's why we have demons and Satan that comes and tempts us and tests us so we can learn how to fight the enemy. And so God allows the, the evil to stay in our land to test us, to prove us, to to cause our faith to grow. And he leaves it here to teach us how to battle the enemy, to wage spiritual war. But then as we look at verses 5 through 8, we discover the progression of sin that occurred. And it occurred over and over in this book. We see it in, in chapter 2. We see it in chapter 3. We see it in chapter 4. And to be perfectly honest with you, we see this cycle repeated over and over and over again in this book. The people turned their back on God. They, they served other gods. They did evil. God would, would hand them over into slavery to a nation. They would cry out to God and God would raise up a deliverer. And that deliverer would, would lead and rule the people. And while that deliverer was there, the people would live for the Lord and serve the Lord. But as soon as he was gone, they would turn back to sin again. How did that occur? Well, we see this in verses 5 and following. Notice what it says. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites, and all the otherites. They took their daughters in marriage and they gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Kushan, 
Rishathiam, king of Aram, Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Now, now notice the progression here. First, we tolerate the sin in our land. They lived among the nations. That word for live literally means that they set up house. They moved in. They got comfortable. In other words, the Israelites became comfortable with the nations and their sins. And that's what's happened to us today. Because of our exposure to sin and sinful practices, we've become comfortable with that sin. So Bruce Jenner discovers that he is no longer a man. He is now a woman. And we applaud his, his freedom to discover his sexual identity. Same-sex marriage is now legal in all 50 states and states. And we rejoice over the fact that everyone now gets to get married in America. We have conversations with our our Muslims, our Hindu, our Buddhist friends. And, and as we do, we come away convinced that, that they serve, they worship the same God we do. They may call him a different name, but, but he's the same God nevertheless. And what's happened is we've, we've gotten to the point that we have become so comfortable with sin that we tolerate it. And then he says that we move from tolerating sin to condoning sin. The Jewish men married pagan wives and the Jewish women were given in marriage to pagan men. Now understand that it's one thing to be neighbors with the pagans. It's another thing to become family with the pagans. They were intermarrying with people that worshipped other gods and committed such vile deeds that God had already destined them to destruction. And yet here they were, they had become so comfortable that the men were marrying their women and the fathers were giving their daughters in marriage to these pagan men. Now the New Testament speaks of this. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Parents, listen. It's vital that from an early age we teach our children the importance of this truth. And hear me. It's important, parents, that as parents we monitor our children and the people they are dating. You may say, well... We shouldn't be that involved. We should give them freedom. Are you going to give your five-year-old the freedom to step out into traffic and be run over? Are you going to give your 11-year-old the freedom to play with rattlesnakes? I mean, why, in God's name, would you give your teenage children the freedom to date someone that is going to lead them to serve pagan gods? And that's what the Bible says happened here. So once they tolerated and then they condoned sin, they began to worship their gods. They they worshiped and served their gods is what it says. And then they did evil. Once we serve pagan gods, it's not going to be long until we begin to commit pagan practices. And finally, the Bible says that they were enslaved. That's what sin does. You see, sin may bring pleasure for a season, 
But when that season ends, the pain always begins. Sin ultimately enslaves. And tragically, it seems like there are many today that that have to hit rock bottom when it comes to sin before they'll ever open up their eyes and cry out to God. And so the Bible says here that, that God sold them into slavery under Kushan Rish Athayim. He that, that name really means, literally means Kushan, the double wicked man. In other words, this is what God said. You want to live wicked lives? Great. I will sell you into slavery so that you can get a double dose of wickedness. You see, God's anger was so great against them that he allowed them to experience the pain of their sin. Sometimes as parents, we have to allow our children to experience the pain of their choices or they're never going to learn the consequences of those choices. And so there are times that that we don't bail them out. There are times that we don't rush to their defense. We allow them to hit that place of pain, that place of heartache, that place of sorrow, so they will recognize where they have gone to. That's what God did. God allowed them to be sold into slavery to a very wicked Man, But then, in the rest of this chapter, we see that the people of God cried out to God and God would bring a deliverer. And, and then they would do wickedness again and they would be sold into slavery and they would cry out to God and God would lift up a deliverer. And three times we see this. I want you to read this passage with me because there's some incredible truths here. Let's begin in verse 9. It says, but when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othnael, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathiam, king of Aram, into the hands of Othnael, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othnael, son of Kenaz, died. But as we see over and over again, God's people seem to be caught up in this never-ending cycle. And it says this, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because of they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, which is outside of Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long when he strapped it to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. And and at the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet. And all his attendants left him. Ehud then 
approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the door of the upper room behind him and locked it. After he had gone down, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he, Eglon the king, must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Syra. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came, Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He, too, saved Israel. Now, why does God include these stories in the Bible? I mean, did God really need to tell us all of these stories and and give us all of these details? I mean, if they are in the Bible, and if the Bible is the inspired Word of God, then every single one of these stories has significance, doesn't it? He didn't leave out one of these stories because in each of these stories, we see a significant truth. You see, as we look at Athnael, Ehud, and Shemgar, that God uses people with limitations. He calls out people with struggles, with problems, to accomplish his divine purpose, his sovereign plan. He uses ordinary people... To accomplish extraordinary things because he is an extraordinary God. Now don't miss this. This is so very important. God's deliverance isn't so much about who we are and what we can do, but rather who God is. So don't miss that. If you sit back and think, God can't use me because, and then you fill in the blank... Understand that that God can use you to do incredible things because his use of you is not about who you are. It's about who he is. Now, Othniel was the first hero mentioned here. And we read first about him in in Joshua chapter 15. We discover that that he is Caleb's nephew. He, he He was Caleb's brother's son. And when Caleb was taking possession of the land that that God had given to Caleb, 
Caleb gave out this decree. He, he said, if any man who takes this city, it was the city of Deburr, he said, any man who takes this city, I will give my daughter in marriage to him. We, we see that story repeated in Judges chapter 1. It was Othniehu who rose up to the challenge and took this city. And so he was not only Caleb's nephew, he was Caleb's son-in-law. Now, most likely, Othniel was a, was a man who, had, who was alive when they entered into the promised land. He had seen God cause the waters of the Jordan River to stop flowing so they could cross on dry ground. He had most likely seen the walls of Jericho come crashing down. He had seen God work in incredible ways in his lifetime. He had saw the faith of his uncle Caleb and, and Caleb's best friend Joshua and how these common ordinary men were used by God to do impossible things because God is a God of the impossible. But now, Othniel is an older man. The Bible tells us that for the most part, that generation that, that lived when Joshua and Caleb entered the promised land, that generation had died off. Perhaps Othniel was the only man left living who had seen the walls of Jericho come crashing down. Perhaps he was the only one that was still alive that had experienced firsthand the power of God in his life. But now he's an old man. He's well past his years of fighting. It's time for him to retire and, and just enjoy life. And what I've discovered is, is that's what a lot of us do. Not only when it comes to life, but when it comes to the Christian life. We do that, don't we? I mean, we serve God for our 20 years, our 30 years, our, our 40 years. And, and then we say it's time for the younger generation to step in and, and do their part. It's time for me and, and my wife to take some time off. And it's time for us to, to sit on the beach. It's time for us to drive around in the golf cart. It's, it's time for us to enjoy life. And, and yet... When we read the Word of God, we never discover anywhere that God says that we ever retire from His service. There are some of you here today who in the past, you did incredible things for the kingdom of God through Northside. You taught, you served as deacons, you led out in worship, you did amazing things, but... For some reason, you came to an age where you said, okay, I've done my part. It's time for someone else to step in. Listen to me. If that's where you are, you have bought in to a view that the world holds, but not a view that God holds. Because God never says that we get to an age where we can sit back and no longer serve. And so Othniel was most likely an older man. But not only was he an older man, most likely he was a foreigner as well. Most people say 
that he was from the Kenzanite people. And, and these people weren't Israelite born. So most likely some point in the past, in Othniel's family's past, his family became followers of the God of Abraham. They, they may have came in touch with Abraham or Isaac or, or Jacob or someone else, and they realized that these men were serving the one true God. And they turned from their pagan gods and started serving the one true God. He wasn't even an Israelite-born man, and yet God was going to use him. You see, God can use you in spite of your age. God can use you in spite of your origin. There are some of you that are saying, man, I was born on the wrong side of the tracks. You don't know where I've come from. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. And I'm here to tell you that I may not know your past. And someone else may not know your past, but God knows your past. God says, I want to use you in an incredible way if you'll only be usable. And so hear me. God can use you regardless of your age. God wants to. And some of you need to get off the sidelines and say, I am re-enlisting for service. There are others of you that need to understand that in spite of where you came from, God can use you if you will only let God use you. Now notice what it says in verse 10. This is incredible. The reason that Athniahu was able to be used by God was because it says that God's Spirit came upon him. It wasn't Othniel's power. It was God's power flowing through him. You see, many times we say that I don't have the strength, I, I don't have the intellect that I used to have, I, I don't have the abilities I used to have, and God says, don't worry about that. I'm the God that can strengthen you if you let me. I love what it says in Zechariah 4, verse 6. Not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord. When God's spirit is empowering you, you can do anything. So don't let your age, don't let your origins limit you. The next deliverer is Ehud. And the Bible says that Eglon, the king of Moab, had enslaved Israel because of their wickedness. And, and the king... Eglon had made this alliance with the Ammonites and the um, Amalekites, and they had controlled Israel for 18 years. But then the people cried out, and God raised up a deliverer, Ehud, or Ehud, who was a left-handed man. Now, to understand, if Israel was going to vote for a deliverer, Ehud would have lost on the first ballot. You say, why do you say that? Well, well, it's not that he was left-handed. You see, there's another word in the Hebrew that, that is typically used to describe a left-handed person. This word in the Hebrew literally means he was bound in his right hand. In other words, he couldn't use his right arm. He was crippled. He was disabled. He had a handicap. It could have been a handicap that he had from a birth. It could have been the result of an accident. It could have been the result of a battle when, when Eglon came and took over Israel. We don't know why he was handicapped in this arm, but we know that he was. And so, in effect, he was powerless. 
And yet God chose him to do incredible things. Now, the people of Israel, every year, they had to deliver tribute money to Eglon. And they chose Ehud to deliver that money. Now, the Bible tells us that Ehud had made a dagger about 18 inches long, and he had placed it on his thigh on his right leg. He had hid it under his clothes. And he obviously was was under the the inspiration of God. God was leading him and telling him to do something. God was letting him know in spite of your weaknesses and in spite of your limitations, I want to use you to do something great. And Ahud began to prepare himself. But he and the other men took the tribute to Eglon. And the Bible says that, that Eglon was a very fat man. Why did, why did God put that in there? I mean, why did God choose to tell us that Eglon was a very fat man? Was, he, was God saying fat people are wicked and evil? No. You see, God wanted us to see that God's people's enemies are always big. I mean, think about it for just a moment. When Joshua and the other spies went into the promised land, what did ten of the spies say? They said, it is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey, but there are giants living in that land, and we are like, what did he say? We are like grasshoppers. Do you remember David when he stood before Goliath? David was just this teenager, and Goliath was this this giant of a man over nine feet tall. You see, God's enemies are always big, they're they're always fat, they're always powerful. And the reason we need to understand that is, is because if they're not, then we're going to have a tendency to try to battle God's enemies on our own. And we can never overcome God's enemies in our own power, in our own strength. And so Eglon was a very fat man, so they delivered the tribute, and, and, and then Ehud and the others started heading back. Ehud may have gotten cold feet, we don't know, but, but the Bible says when he got to Gilgal, he saw, most translations say, the idols there. The word literally means the etched stones. And so it could be that, that at Gilgal, Eglon had erected idols there. And when he saw the idols there, he was incensed by those idols. And that's when he sent everybody back and he went back to Eglon. But there's another possibility. In the book of Joshua, chapter 4, verse 20, when the Israelites are crossing the Jordan on dry ground, do you remember what God tells Joshua to lead the people to do? He he tells the leaders of each tribe to go and, and get a stone out of the Jordan River where they walked on dry ground and then they were to erect a monument. Do you know where they put that monument? At Gilgal. And that monument made of stones was to be a reminder of how God delivered them. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness. And maybe, just maybe, when Ehud came to Gilgal and he saw those stones... He was reminded that his God is the all-powerful God. And his God is able to deliver him if he will just trust. And so Ehud went back. 
And he went to Eglon and he said, I have a message from God for you. And so Eglon had all of his men leave. And then the Bible tells us that Ehud went up close like he was going to tell Eglon a secret. And and Eglon got up to listen to the secret. And the Bible says at that point, he reached with his left hand, took the dagger, and thrust it into his stomach. And the Hebrew says, and this this is gross, but the Hebrew says that his bowels, his intestines fell out to the floor. He put all of his might, all of his power into this, and he thrust into this enemy of God's people's stomach, and he killed him immediately in his intestines, and everything in his intestines came out. Well, after Ehud had killed him, he realized that maybe I can escape. And so he climbed down this, this, this wall and, and he escaped. And as he was escaping, he, he saw those stones again at Gilgal. Well, meanwhile, all of Eglon's people were there waiting for him. And after a while, they began to get concerned. And so they went to the door and they discovered the door was locked. And they said, perhaps he's relieving himself. The Hebrew word literally means his feet are covered. Now, now you say, what, what does that mean? Well, guys, let's think for just a moment. We go to the ball game, the football game, and before the football game, we're tailgating. We're eating tacos and burritos and all kind of good food, and we enjoy the game up until halftime, and, and at about halftime, We need to make a run to the border. We need to go to the bathroom. We need to do some serious business. And so we run to the bathroom. And we're trying to see if there is a stall open. And there are two ways that we can figure that out. We can bang on the door and see if it's locked. But the other thing us guys do is we kind of look under the stall. And if we see feet that are covered, their pants are down at their feet, we know that that stall is in use. And so Iglon's servant says, obviously, his feet are covered. Now, why did they think he was using the bathroom? This is gross. But it was because of the smell. You see, the Bible says in the Hebrew that that when Ehud thrust that knife into his stomach and his intestines came out, it tells us that the dung, the feces, came out with it. Now, the city of Palms, the Bible says, was a hot place anyway. And we're told that it was a hot day. And so here it is, a hot day, and his intestines, and everything that was in his intestines is on the floor. And so they go to the door, and, and they smell this smell. And they go, well, obviously the king is taking care of business. And so they wait, and they wait, and they wait. 
And they go, goodness gracious, he must be reading a novel in there. And after a while, they get worried, and they unlock the door, and they find their king dead. Isn't it amazing how God orchestrated even those tiny events so that Ehud could escape? I mean, gross, ugh, events. But God did that so that his deliverer could deliver the people. Now, why is this story so important? Because it shows us that God can use us in spite of our weaknesses. Here was a man who, who was handicapped, who said, I can't serve. Look at my limitations. I, 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 I don't have the strength that other people have. And yet God used him and hear me. He led Israel to have a period of deliverance that was longer than any other period in the book of Judges. And then we come to the last judge in this chapter, Shemgar. And Shemgar gets only one verse, but he's given one verse. He was a farmer, and the Bible tells us that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He didn't have a sword. He didn't have a spear. He didn't have a shield. He had an ox goad. He was a farmer, and he used what he had. Now, an ox goad was about eight feet long, and on one side there was this sharp point that they would prod the, prod the ox with, and on the other side was a shovel where they would dig the trenches as they were farming. And he used what he had to kill 600 people. You know what I've discovered? I've discovered that many people say, I can't accomplish what other people have because I don't have their resources. And yet, over and over and over again, we see God using people with, without resources to do incredible things. Look how we used Moses' rod. Look how we used a slingshot and stones. Look how we used some thread and some cloth in the New Testament. Look how he used five um, loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Over and over and over again, God can take our limited resources and he can do incredible things if we allow him. You see, God can use us in spite of our lack of resources. So what is the point here? Here's the point. Most of us make excuses for why we're not willing to be used by God to do incredible great things. Sometimes we say, but God, I'm too old or I'm too young. Sometimes we say, God, you don't know where I've come from. They won't listen to me. Sometimes we say, but God, I, I'm not as smart as this person. I'm not as strong as this person. I've got these handicaps. I've got these limitations. At other times we say, God, I don't have the resources that other people have. And we make excuses instead of listening to the Spirit of God and saying, God, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. And here's what I know. We've got an army at Northside. An army. If every single person that, that comes to Northside regularly would begin to serve and 
would begin to be used by God to make a difference in our culture and in our land and in our church. We could turn this city and this state and this nation and this world upside down. But the problem is, instead of saying, God, I'm yours, use me. We say, God, too young, I'm too old. Look where I've come from. God, I'm weak. God, I'm handicapped. God, I'm limited. God, I don't have the resources other people have. And we make excuses. But all along, the God of all creation, the almighty, all-powerful God says, if you will just simply trust me and follow me, I'll use you to do great things. So here's what I want you to do this morning. Simple time of invitation. We've got the keyboard playing. And for the next few minutes, if you're willing to say, God, tired of sitting on the sidelines. I want to make a difference. I don't know what you're going to do through me. I don't know what you're going to do in me. But God, I'm ready to get in the battle. If you're willing to say that, then I want you to come down to this altar. And I just want you to pour your heart out to God. In just a moment, I'm going to kneel down right here and I'm going to pray. And for the next few minutes, we're going to make the front of this stage an altar. And we're just going to say, God, use me. I'm tired of seeing our nation continually go down. I'm tired of people dying, never hearing of you. I'm ready to make a difference. If you will join us, regardless of your age your limitations, your lack of resources. I want to encourage you to get up out of your seat and then come down and join me as we pray. Father God, your word makes clear that you'll take anybody 
You'll take what the world sees as nobodies. You'll turn them into somebodies who change the world. Othni Ehu, Ehu, Shamgar, they were common, ordinary men who surrendered to an extraordinary God. And you used them in an incredible way to do far more than they could have ever imagined. And oh Lord God, I just ask that you'll use us. Forgive us for our indifference. Forgive us for sitting around watching our nation deteriorate. Forgive us, Father, for sitting in the comfort of our homes while people are dying all around the world, never hearing the name Jesus. Oh, God, please forgive us and use us. Whether we're young, whether we're old, whatever our abilities or disabilities may be, use us, Father. Use us to change the world, to set the captives free. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to continue to worship now. We're going to pray, and we're going to worship through giving. We're going to worship through singing. And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do that. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the resources that you have entrusted in our hands as far as finances and Lord, I just pray we'll be good stewards with what you've entrusted in our hands. Help us to realize how incredibly blessed we are in America. Father, I pray that we'll be generous, selfless people. Use what we give to change lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.